Amen. Hey, thank the team that came out today, Legion Worship. If you're sitting at home, you can clap at home too, absolutely. I'm glad you're here. Really appreciate that we can gather like this and that we can also have folks that are watching online and we see our crowd in here ebb and flow and the same thing for online. So we want you to feel comfortable using whichever option feels good to you. I want to ask before we kind of get into things, how are you doing? I mean, I'd love it if we could just have a one-on-one conversation, but you could at least be thoughtful and reflect about what the last week or so has been like for you, whether you have been uh, encouraged or discouraged, whether you have felt hopeful or like uh, hope is a, a fading thing in the moment. You remember when we thought there might be a second wave in, in the fall, and now we seem to be facing one as we watch uh, numbers and news and things like that. You, you remember back in March when you thought, Don and I both said, you know, by June we'll be back to normal. Did you say anything like that? Did you have this perspective? Um, very, very hopeful. And then is, of course, the back end of hope that is not realized, of course. Uh, there's a chance that uh, discouragement could sneak in. A little despair might be there. And I wonder if you have felt the other things that are connected to discouragement, uh, whether it's been fear or anxiety uh, or maybe you're just a bit numb to some of those things and you're just sort of checking out and deciding that, you know, if, if I even think about what I'm feeling, I'm just going to go down a path I don't want to be down. Maybe you've been down that path too often over the last few months. I think one of the hard things about some of those feelings that we have uh, that are uh, hard or negative or discouraging in many ways connected to it is this feeling of, of gratitude because I don't know about you, but I walk in my fridge and I have everything that I need, you know, and then some. Uh, I wonder, you know, I don't wonder why I feel this way because God has provided so well for us or God is taking care of the things that we need. And I mean, even yesterday morning, I, you know, I got up early in the day, the sun was shining, it was warm, it was beautiful. Did you get out some yesterday before it got hot and uh, just couldn't even find a cloud in the sky and, and went for a walk. We lived just over the hill. And so we went for a walk and ended up in Miller Park. Just beautiful, beautiful. And just people everywhere enjoying God's good creation. And I began to uh, exercise a bit. Hey, have you ever been on the highway and uh, you pull up beside somebody and then maybe behind them and you think, well, I should probably just pass them. You know, no need to tailgate. The highway's big. And you kind of pass them and then put it on cruise and you're moving ahead. And then about 30 seconds later, they pull up beside you and pass you. And they thought you were playing a game. And then you say, you know, I don't want to be behind them all this way. And so you pull around and pass them. And, and then they think, ooh, this is fun. And they start doing that to you. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, well, that happened to me on the incline yesterday. And so I started off the incline and somebody ran past me and I thought, show off. You know, that's fine. I'll go my pace. And then about 10 steps later, there they were uh, doing their thing on the incline, the stopping interval thing. And, and so I passed them, you know, which means I got to walk further, right? It's further to go around. And I'm good, you know, that I'm even on the incline is a miracle. And so, so then about 10 steps later, they run past me again. And I thought, what is going on? This is weird. They stop again. So this happened all the way up seven times. They passed me seven times. About the fourth or fifth time, I was thinking, this, this is getting old. Now I'm getting aggravated. By the time I got to the top, I was in full internal rage. I mean, you couldn't tell. I had a smile. 
Um, I was totally faking it. Um, but what I felt was just this really deep sense of, you know, irritation. And you could, you could call it anger. Got to the top and I'm looking, you know, I looked around. I thought, what, what is that about? Why do I feel this way? I mean, I'm just walking. I mean, you know, I mean, up a hill, true. That's enough to make anybody irritable. But I didn't have that feeling of anger before. Where did that come from? Have you felt this way over the last few months where you had this sense of maybe anxiety or just hopelessness or discouragement that shows up and it comes from nowhere? We're dealing with that because of the uncertainty of our times. If you've had any of those feelings at all, and maybe you struggle with them even yet today, let me encourage you to open up your scripture at home, time alone, just you and the Lord, and spend some time in Psalm 42. Uh, the author of Psalm 42 experienced what we're experiencing, and, and the words are so, oh, they just seem to just speak to me in significant ways about what we're going through. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? You could fill in whatever emotion that just sort of ransacks you in the moment that you didn't see coming, comes around the corner and just, you know, hits you. This is what I'm thinking at the top of the incline. Why am I so angry? I have no reason to be angry. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm breathing fresh air. The sun is shining. It's beautiful. I made it to the top. I didn't have a heart attack. All those things to be thankful for. And yet I'm angry. I'm really, really angry. And I don't understand why. This is what the psalmist says. These emotions have surprised me. And they've caught me unaware. And I believe this happens when the times that we're in are uncertain and we're not sure about what's around the corner. And so we don't know, is there a mask mandate or not? Is it going to be, whether or not I wear a mask, is, it, is that going to be really determining who I vote for? Is this, is this what's going on? Are we having school or are we not? Are we, who are we putting at risk? Who are we going to decide to put at risk as we move forward, trying to open up or do we shut back down? Well, you think you've seen riots. Wait till they try to initiate another lockdown. My goodness. Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so sad? And it's almost as if the author of the psalm has gone through a, a pandemic. You, you got to read the whole thing because the, the author says this, my heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. Come on, is that not appropriate for our time? And what's beautiful about the Psalms and Scripture in general is that the psalmist, of course, goes through these emotions and they express and articulate these feelings, but they don't just leave you there. Never, never do the Psalms leave you there. They, they show you a path, a way to go. And when you read Psalm 42, if you'll spend time there, then you'll see how this psalm will take you from a place of discouragement to hope, from discouragement to believing and knowing. And it's beautiful, and it really does, in just a few verses, paint this entire picture, the story arc of Scripture. And this is why we're in this, this series called The Way Home. You know, we're, we're taking just a little snapshot look at the nation of Israel after they've been in exile and now they're coming home and they had this leader, Zerubbabel, and we're walking through the books of Ezra and eventually Nehemiah. And there's a few others, one we'll talk a little bit about today. But we're trying to get a glimpse of this story so that we can see how we fit in God's bigger story. 
But what's so important is that you don't miss, as we've said before, the plot. If you don't lose sight of the plot, that you keep in mind the bigger picture. Because if not, discouragement will find you, I promise. It's going to find you anyway, by surprise. But you will find your way out of discouragement or anxiety or anger or fear if you are deeply connected in your heart and in your mind with the bigger story that God is telling, has been telling since the beginning of time, is still telling today, and will continue to be told long after we take our last breath on the earth. This story that God is telling, well, it's all about his relationship with us. But if you're not careful, you could miss the point, because that's what we do. We, we miss the point. So let me take you to where we were. We were in Ezra. The people of God had come back from Babylon. Zerubbabel has led them home along with his buddy Joshua. Not the Joshua you know, different Joshua. In the second month of the second year, after they got all the way back into Jerusalem, they arrived at their house of God in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem they began to do what? The work. The work. So you've been doing for the last several months. Whatever the work is. Whatever the work is that God has put in front of you. I mean, if you're not sure what to do, you can always do the work, right? It means you show up, you get dressed, you try to make sure you don't smell funny, and you go do the work. Maybe you do it at home, and so you clean the counters and run the dishwasher again and try to get breakfast ready for the kids. You do the work, and it's what they did. Now, last week, if you remember, we said the very first thing they did, when they showed up, they went to the place of the temple, and then they reconstructed the altar, this one little spot inside the temple, and they began to worship. And our encouragement to you last week was, look, if you're losing perspective, worship is a way to regain it. Just put your gaze on God and remember who you are in the grand scheme of things, and that will help. It does. If last week was about worship, this week is about the, really the essence of what it means to be in God's presence and why it matters and what the scriptures say about it. So the question that you got to ask if you're reading the scripture in front of you and you're looking at the details, they begin to do the work, but look at when they began. It was the second month of the second, what? The second year, what in the world? How long did it take them to get to work? I mean, they came back with the articles from the temple that they, the king had given them. They know their job is to build the temple. I mean, how long would you last at your job if by the time you started the second month of the second year, they showed up and said, aren't you going to mop the floors? I mean, how long would you be employed? And why did it take these people so long? When they came home, they went to their homes, and they went and take care of their homes. They went and rebuilt their homes. In fact, during this time, God had to raise up a prophet. His name is Haggai. There's another one coming, but this prophet came at this time, and this is what happened. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, these Israelites, these Jewish exiles who have returned, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, why would they say that? What's on their to-do list? What has them distracted? Why are they not paying attention to the temple work that is in front of them? Well, God gives us a clue. He says this, same passage. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? 
while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now, that's a great question. And what's going to happen, we'll talk about it in weeks to come, Haggai prophesies and the people realize, oh, he's, they're right. They're right. We, we, we've been taking care of our own home and, and the temple of God is just still brick upon brick. I mean, no stone is in the right place. We need to get to work. We should, we should get to work. Before we talk about the purpose of them coming back to rebuild the altar and the temple, I want to give you a frame regarding the temple. Because if you're not careful, you could be mistaken and believe that the purpose that they came back for, rebuilding the temple itself, is really, really important to God. You might be mistaken in thinking that. You could believe as you read all about the story of God and the temple and God's presence and even the tabernacle, that this house that God lives in is of preeminent significance and importance to God. But if you believe that, then you would have missed the whole story of Scripture and you would have completely missed the point, which we do a lot, don't we? We miss the point. You found yourself over the last several weeks missing the point. You read a headline and you get really, really angry and you're telling somebody all about it and you're worked up and you've really missed the point of the day or why you even got out of bed. You're watching somebody lose their mind on a viral video that's circulating all across the internet. And you think, well, your first thought is, well, thank God that's not me. Thank God they didn't catch me on video when I did that. But your other thought is, oh my goodness, you know, he's gonna watch this and feel like such a fool. He's completely missed the point. The Pharisees in the days of Jesus, they had completely missed the point. I mean, they knew the scriptures better than anybody. They were devout and thoughtful and committed to God in countless ways. And yet when the Messiah comes, they completely miss it. Well, they're no different from us. We miss the point. In fact, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he was giving them some woes. And, and by that, we just mean he was indicting them, telling them some things that were wrong with them. Here's how he said it. He said it this way. You, when you're drinking water, you have a cloth and you pour your water through it. It's how they clean their water. You strain out a gnat, but you, what? Say it with me. What? What a picture, right? I mean, can you see the Pharisee, right? He's strained out his water and he's drinking it, but he's picked up this big hairy camel, shoving it into his mouth. This is the picture that Jesus painted. He said, you have completely missed the point. You, you, your focus is so tight, so myopic that you read the scriptures, but you don't understand there is a Messiah coming. How could you have missed the point? And so while we zero in on this story of scripture, the exiles coming back to rebuild the temple, you might think that whether it's the altar, the temple of God, or the walls of Jerusalem, that that is really important to God. It's not. Let's give you some history about the temple and God's presence and what it means. And then we'll zip back into the story next week. So you might remember God's people in slavery. Moses leads them out. They're wandering in the desert. You remember what came before the temple that Moses created in the desert? You remember what it was called? It's called the tabernacle. Does that ring a bell? And the tabernacle wasn't a building per se. It was like a tent. 
had poles and it was fabric and then it was a holy of holies and wherever they went they set it up and when they set it up they used it to worship but it was easy to move and easy to take wherever they were going it was portable but it was their house of worship and then finally once they got into the promised land they were going to build a temple David wanted to build it in fact the idea of a temple listen close doesn't even come from God don't miss it most of us don't even understand this from scripture Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 7. This is David, and he is in a peacetime. He's probably kind of bored. He's looking around the land. He's thinking about what's next, and he says this. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a what? How many of you like to tent camp? Nobody likes to tent camp, right? Okay, he does. I mean, you know, right, Michael, this is fun, right? It's not bad. You got to sleep on the ground. You have bugs. I, I, most people that I know tent camp do it either out of convenience or they can't get a camper back there. That's why they tent camp. My son loves to backpack, and he likes the camper that we've purchased, along with the rest of the world that's also buying campers. And he knows he'll use that as long as he can get to the trailhead he wants to go to. This is David's concern. God lives in a tent, doesn't feel right. But it's David's feeling. It's not God's feeling. In fact, David says, you know, I think I'll build God a, a nice big house to live in. And Nathan the prophet hears him say it, and Nathan says, well, David, you should do whatever you would like because God is with you. But then that night, God spoke to Nathan. And this is what God said to Nathan the prophet. He said this, don't miss, this is priceless. I have not dwelt, so God said to Nathan, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, did I ever say to them, how come you haven't built me a house? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? No, he's never said that. Whose idea was the temple? It's David's. We, you know, I, I have a nice house. God should have a nice house. Can you imagine, honestly, the, the pride that's associated with that statement and the direction it took the children of Israel? Nathan tells David, um, God will have a temple, but you're not going to build it. Your son will build it because he will be a king of peace. You've been a king of war. And so Solomon decides to build God a temple. Now, did God bless it? Of course. Did God have a use for it and a purpose behind it? Absolutely. Did God help him design it? Of course he did. Absolutely. But Solomon built a temple that was grand and incredible. It was the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed when he took the children of Israel into exile. The temple was never intended to be the dwelling place of God. And it never fully was. And if you don't grasp that understanding, you will misunderstand the nature of God's relationship with us. See, you can begin to believe that we're here and God is over there, and so we need to go meet with him. It's the idea of coming to church. It's the idea that this is where we're spiritual. It's what we say when we walk in here and we say, well, I have to tell the truth, we're in church, right? 
It's the idea that we would say things out in the parking lot or certainly at the restaurant that we would never say in this place. It creates this divide in our lives that, well, this is sacred, a place, and the rest is secular or not necessarily holy or set apart, and it divides our lives in two. And the result then, of course, is that we lack, well, the very nature of that definition. We lack integrity. We lack what it means to be one everywhere, all the time, with all people. And this idea that God would have a house that he dwells in, well, it sounds like a good idea if you're trying to run an organization, but it's an awful idea if you're trying to build a relationship with the Almighty. And it never was God's intention. It wasn't his idea to begin with. And it's not just an Old Testament, New Testament idea either. When Paul in the New Testament is talking to the people who inhabited Athens and he sees all their idols and they're worshiping and he's trying to communicate the gospel to them, here's what he says. And he says this as if it always were and always will be. Paul says to the people of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Say the yellow part with me, ready? And he does not live in temples built by, who built the temple of Solomon? Well, yeah, his workers did. Solomon didn't lay one of those stones. He paid people to do it. Who built the next temple? And the temple after that? Men, where does God live? It's a great question. There were three temples that really took up the, the scope of our understanding of what's happening in Jerusalem. The first was Solomon's temple. This temple that was grand and powerful and beautiful. Destroyed by Nebuchadnezzer. They were taken off into exile. Then Zerubbabel and his buddies, they came back and they began to build another temple in that very same place. It was modest, and we'll talk more of that as it unfolds. Incredible lessons to be learned in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then, about 20 B.C., there was some additions to the temple that were started by Herod. They started with what Zerubbabel had started hundreds of years before, but they began to build on it. In fact, they built on it so much more fully and more grand that they changed the name and gave it a different legacy, and it was called Herod's Temple. And it would stand in that place. It would be the very place where Jesus would experience the temple until 70 AD when it was destroyed and sacked. So the temple that Jesus experienced... Do you remember his first experience as a teacher, as an adult in the temple? He was brought there as a baby, eight days old. But then as a teacher, he came after his ministry began, and he walked into the temple. Do you remember what he did? John tells us about it in chapter 2. He, he cleared the temple, and he, he made a whip out of cords, and he turned over the tables of the money changers. He did this because there was an economic injustice for those who lived away, foreigners, and as they came to exchange money and buy sacrifices, they were held at a distance from God if they were poor. This is what made Jesus the angriest he's ever been in his three-year ministry. He walked into this temple and destroyed the outer court, turned it into chaos. The religious leaders had a question for him after he did this. The Jews responded to him and said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? By what authority are you doing this? Now, if you're wondering how Jesus feels about the temple, if you're wondering how 
God, through the person of Jesus, God in the flesh incarnate, feels about a house made for God. Here's what Jesus said. By what authority? Jesus answered, answered them this. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in what? What's he talking about? Oh, he's talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. What's Jesus saying? I am the temple. So Jesus said, where does God live? Well, Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. His presence is with me. His presence isn't in the Ark of the Covenant. His presence isn't in the Holy of Holies. His presence is in me. Do you remember the birth story? Do you remember the name that was given to Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us? That Jesus would say this about this holy structure is absolutely incredible. Destroy it, and I'll raise it again in three days. Their, their response is pretty funny, right? Three days? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Not giving credit to Zerubbabel and his friends that laid the foundation for Herod's temple. Destroy it, and I'll raise it again in three days. So where is God's presence? And his presence is important all throughout Scripture. His presence means that he is with us. So as they wandered in the desert from Egypt to home, there's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day. When they went into battle, his presence meant that they would be victorious. When they were lost, their presence meant, his presence meant that they would find their way. His presence means safety. His presence means peace. His presence means comfort. It means that he will drive out fear. He will reduce anxiety. His presence means connection, relationship, wholeness. That's what his presence means. So throughout the centuries, the Jewish leaders, religious people, and many even in the first century, and many today, reduce God's presence to a place or an experience in a church setting or a procedure. This is how you approach God a ritual, a rite. And those that do miss the entire arc of the story and what God has wanted from the very beginning. The New Testament doesn't stop there. It goes back over and over and over again. And so many of us, well, we, we've strained out a gnat and we've swallowed a camel. We've missed the point. Here's how Paul says it in the book of Ephesians. He says this, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he uses a building analogy, but he's not going to talk about a building. He's going to talk about people always with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is this foundation, this building. Jesus is the center, holds it all together. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy what? Isn't that a beautiful picture? He's saying that all these years, you thought it was a place. You thought it was a, a location. You thought it was stone and brick and mortar and a structure, and it's not. It's people, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a what? A dwelling. 
in which God lives by his spirit. Peter says it the same way. This is not an obscure theme in scripture. Peter says, you are living stones. You are alive. And God is using you to build. That God is building into his spiritual what? Look, if you thought Zerubbabel, if you thought even Solomon or anybody else in between was coming back to build a place where God would dwell and that he's there, and it's just a little different in the New Testament, that's not the case at all. This has been the case since the beginning of the time, the beginning of the garden. God in his presence, in the confines of this place called Eden with his people. Paul says it again in a different way in 2 Corinthians. He says this, for we are the temple of the living God. Say it with me. We'll say that line all of us together. For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, here's what God has said, I will live with them. I will walk with, walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is a quote from Leviticus. This is how it's been from the very beginning. We mentioned the garden. You remember what it was like with God and Adam and Eve in the garden? It says he walked with them together in the cool of the day. From the beginning, relationship with God has always been about presence. It's always been about knowing that he is with you. You know the story of Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, beaten, left for dead ends up in a foreign country and all the difficulties, accused of all manner of things that he didn't do. And all throughout this story in Genesis, it says over and over and over again, and Joseph knew that God was with him. That's how he was able to stay integrous. That's how he was able to move forward, to make good decisions, to be thoughtful, to not give in to fear or anxiety, to not give up while he believed that God was abandoning him. Come on, if you're anything like me at all, over the last few months you have wondered, where is God, right? This question, where is he? Joseph believed that God was with him that he was living with them, walking among him. He was their God and Joseph belonged to him. If I want you to know anything from today before we get into the details of Ezra and the rebuild and Nehemiah, it's this. God is with you as you go through these uncertain and difficult days. He is, he is with you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't drawn away from you. He hasn't moved across the street. He hasn't decided to put some distance between you and him. I know, I know, you don't feel it. It doesn't seem like it. How could he be present in the midst of all this chaos? But when you read the story of scripture, when you understand what God is doing throughout the arc of history, then you know this, that if you need anything to get through the day, the week, the month, the pandemic, whatever it is, you need this, truth as a cornerstone, that God is with you. And he wants you to turn your gaze to him. He wants you to rely on him. Now, we know what that looks like in a human relationship. We're just not used to doing it 
in a daily way with God. But he wants you to rely on him the same way you rely on a trusted friend. The same way you lean on and depend on someone who helps you physically, literally get through a difficult time. So when you find yourself in pain, he wants to know about it. He wants you to open up. He wants you to abandon yourself to it and to him. This is why the psalmist is able to say, why do I feel like giving up? It's a prayer to God. It's why Jesus said from the cross, why have you forsaken me? Why? That's how it felt. That's why he said it. If you need anything to get through these days, the uncertainty of the future, let alone five years from now, how about November, right? It's to believe this, that God is with you. His presence is with you. And he wants you to depend on him, fully surrendered. You're familiar with the love languages? How many of you have read the love language books? How many of you have been taught the love language? These ideas that are so helpful in marriage and good friendships. Everybody has a love language, right? For some people, it's acts of service. For some people, it's gifts. For some people, it's physical touch. For some people, it's quality time. The last one I know of for some of you is words of affirmation. And Everybody gives and receives love in different ways. I believe these apply to our relationship with God. I don't know what to do with the physical touch thing. I mean, I imagine as Jesus was incarnate, you know, he, he was always touching, you know, he, hugging, and, you know, the woman wept at his feet. So I touch was important then. Words of affirmation, well, every time I read the Psalms, every time we sing, this is a love language that we express to God. Gifts, well, we give gifts to God all the time. I mean, I believe these are ways we express our love and adoration to God. The one that I believe that is God's central love language, our love to him, is quality time. And what would that look like? Now, I'm not talking about coming to church. You're thinking temple. Don't think temple. Think God's presence. It's when I get to the top of the incline and I acknowledge my anger and I confess it. And I'll be honest, I feel a bit of shame and, you know, self-reproach and then look around and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Look what you've, look at this view, what you've given me, you know. I love you. And I want to live for you. I don't want to have those feelings in my heart because they come out in very ugly ways, in words I shouldn't say and things I shouldn't do. Quality time. It's when you find yourself in the grocery store and you see somebody struggling and you just say, Lord, would you just, would you just pour out your love on this person? Would you just pour out your love on them. I don't know what they need and what they probably don't need is me interrupting their day. You know, people don't know how to interact with strangers these days. You've noticed this, right? Nobody knows how to talk or say hello and you can't hear people through a stinking mask anyway. So all these things are just a part of our social experience. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd walk with us through this. I have no idea how to love the people who are being a little rude to me. I don't know how to love them well. What that means is that I've come to the conclusion that God is with us as we go through these uncertain days and times. That God does not live in a place built by the hands of men. That he lives in you and that he is with you. 
that God is building you into a dwelling that he can fully reside in, his presence. That when you go somewhere, you take the presence of God with you into the context of that relationship. And all of it so that you and I can live out Genesis 12, Abraham. Do you remember? God said, I'm gonna bless you and make you into a great nation so that you will bless others. That's what God wants you to do. Come on, you're not just going to the store. You are God's emissary into that very moment. You're not just waking up and engaging with your family. You are God's presence to them, for them, and with them. And through you, God brings grace and love and mercy through your actions, your words, every moment of your day. Oh, I know, that feels like a lot of pressure to live with. God does all the heavy lifting. All you have to do is acknowledge his presence and allow him to work through you and do the very things that you are incapable of doing. And so we surrender. Let me talk you through that as we pray. Why don't you bow your heads? Lord, we surrender right now to you and we believe and declare that you are with us, that you will go through us, through, through these uncertain times with us, and that you will work through us, that your presence will do incredible things. It, it will do things like reduce our anxiety as we trust you more fully. It will help us to be kind when we want to be rude. It will help us to be loving when we want to be distant and checked out. So right now, just confess some of those things that you have felt over the last week or two, few months. Name them the same way you would to a good friend that says, how are you doing? So right now we, we confess these things to you. Just take a moment, have a chat with God about it. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are afraid. Some of us have had so many feelings over the last few months that we're just numb. Some of us look at some of the behavior and choices and paths that folks are choosing and we're angry. We're so angry. Lord, help us to, as Psalm 42 teaches us, to squarely place our hope on you and you alone. 
on your presence, your redeeming activity in our own hearts. The declaration in scripture that you will make us new. Lord, we ask for that. We come to you open-handed, desiring that, believing that this can only come from you. Lord, we have much to face in the days to come. Questions and uncertainty. Plans and work. Difficulty. Good stuff. Family and joy and good gifts that you'll give us along the way. Lord, we want to do so in a faithful way. We want to do so knowing and believing that you have called us the same way you did Abraham so that you may bless us, that you may pour out your goodness and mercy on us that we may in turn offer it to the people around us, that we would be such a profound blessing, a gift to those around us. Lord, we want that. We, we want to be used by you in those ways. And we believe we'll find that through your presence, through surrender to you, knowing and believing that that the temple served a purpose for its time and its place, but your presence has always been with your people in their hearts, never in a place of brick and mortar, never in a locale or a zip code or an address. It's always been within those of us that bear your image, your created men and women that fill the earth. So Lord, may we bear your image well bless those around us. Lord, we receive your blessing now.